Hey, this is Alex Terranova, and this is the Dream Mason Podcast. We've been taught to behave, to fit in, to follow the rules, but Dream Masons reject conventional thought. Dream Masons are rebels. They take a chisel to the marble that is typical traditional life. They carve out brilliance and broadcast it to the world. Join me for another chapter as we unmask convention, embrace the rebels within us, and more deeply come to explore the complex and agitated edges of our existence. Now, before we get started, please don't be a rebel yet and grab your phone and hit that little button that says subscribe. Thank you. Because your dreams don't build themselves. What's up? Good morning or afternoon or night or man, I never even say that. Wherever you are, good, whatever you're doing in whatever time. This is Alex Taranova and this is the Dream Mason podcast. It is 11-11 and as I always say, I give you the date because this year has been a wild ride and who knows how this conversation will be in context with what's going on on November 11th or when it airs likely in December. It may be completely out of context. So I just want to give you that, but I hope you are well and uh, healthy and thriving in wherever you are and whatever you are doing. Um, today, I want to dive right into this episode. Uh, we're going to talk with an entrepreneur who's really like, I want, to say, I want to call him a serial entrepreneur. I don't know what makes someone a serial entrepreneur like, you know, where's that difference when we call people serial killers? How many people do they have to kill? Is it like one, two, three, five? Um, so I don't know how many people, how many entrepreneurship ventures you have to have to be a serial entrepreneur, but he's done a few and he's been very successful. Uh, he, he's specifically had multiple businesses that have generated over six figures, including a seven figure PR agency. He's a branding expert. He's a speaker. He's a business strategist. Over the course of 23 years, he's counseled small businesses, entrepreneurs, and corporations. He's also a Gallup certified strength trainer. He's the host of the Authority Brand podcast. He wrote a book, The Five Pillars of Freedom Lifestyle. And he's also produced a handful of children and has a family. <laughs> he's laughing, but he, uh, he, he's, he's produced a family and children. Um, and overall, he just seems like a great guy and he's living a great life. Welcome to the Dream Mason podcast, Kurt Mercandante. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, Alex. Pleasure to be here. And by the way, my wife did most of the grunt work on the production of the children. So, you know. Thanks for, yeah, I'm sure that's good that you, that you just gave her credit. Like <laughs> if she heard this, she's like, wait a minute, what, I didn't do the work. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. Thanks for that intro. Uh, great to be here. Um, just really quick, you have you said you have four kids, right? You said to me before. Yeah, yeah, four kids. The oldest, our daughter's fourteen. She's the princess, and then we have three sons: twelve, nine, and six. Wow. Yeah. And how is this? You know, I I've been saying two thousand and twenty has been it's just been a wild ride of a year for everyone, right? Whether you're thriving or crying, it's been a wild ride. Um, but I have felt like the whole time, like one of the areas that I felt. Um, has likely been really challenging is people that do have kids because not only do you have all the challenges that we've that everyone has, but you now have had them dropped in your home. You have to educate them or do more of the educating. Maybe you already were homeschooling, but now you have to do all the entertaining. Also, um, it's it's. I think it's just like you know, it's just like putting boulders on the scale. Like with the more kids you have, what's it been like for you guys? Yeah, you know, so we've homeschooled throughout. 
And so some people will be like, oh, this is normal for you, right? The kids are at home. Well, we're very entrepreneurial and when we homeschool, we actually call it unschooling and we do a self-directed education. You know, my daughter, she's 14. She's taking an adult level nutrition and physical education course that like 30 year olds are taking, right? We let them follow what they want to do and their skills and their passions. And so for us, it's actually been a lot different because normally we're out doing things. We'll go with groups that, that uh, when we, you know, our home base is in Charleston, South Carolina, that went out to the ocean and learned about sea life or went to the aquarium or went to the museums and did that stuff. So we couldn't do that, that stuff. But, you know, we're 14 years into homeschool. We're still figuring it out after 14 years. It's just like anything else. And it really took us years to get into a flow. So I, you know, someone who has four kids or two kids or one kid and they both work and all of a sudden they're homeschoolers overnight, I have so much empathy for them. Yeah. But I think a lot of parents are, you know, early on people are like, what, what advice would you have? And I think a lot of them are figuring out that if you are trying to replicate the school day at home, it ain't going to work. And, you know, I have relatives who are teachers and they say, you don't understand that, you know, three quarters of the school day is crowd control. And, you know, if you've got a 40 minute <laughs> class, you know, yeah. most of it's saying, depending on the age, but maybe not really sit down, be quiet, all this. And, and so it's, it's, you know, it is. And, and I've talked to teachers who are livid about what's going on because you've got people above or politicians or whatever, making choices that make no sense based on the teachers or the parents or the kids. And uh, so I, I feel for anyone having to go through that. And, you know, we decided because a lot of the things that we had were shut down, we sold, we consolidated a 4,000 square foot house into a minivan, put our home on the market, sold just about everything we own, donated some stuff. We just hit the road and we were in the mountains in Georgia for six weeks. We went up to Illinois to visit family. We're, uh, we're here in Tennessee right now in the mountains. We go hiking, fishing, all that stuff. Well, I still run my business. And in December, we're going back to the beach for the holidays with some friends around Charleston. And then just kind of taking it as it comes. If they ever open up, we want to go overseas, but we'll see if, if we're ever allowed to do that. <laughs> what, I, what I really love and appreciate about that is you're, you're working with what you have. And I think that has been, for me, for my clients, like that's been the story of success this year. It doesn't like mean that we all haven't gotten hit by shit, for lack of a better word. Like it's impacted all of us. Now, Absolutely. If you didn't have money or you lost your job or people got sick and died, like the impact is vastly maybe greater for some people than others. And most people that I know haven't lost people, haven't gotten too sick. Uh, most people I know haven't lost their jobs. And yet a lot of them are still complaining or whining about that they can't go to a restaurant or they can't do whatever. And what I love about your what you just shared. And it's, it's been my experience of this year too, is okay, there's things that I can't do and that may or not be annoying or frustrating or whatever, but there's so much that I can, that I wasn't doing. I used to make excuses of why I couldn't get a dog. I got a dog in March and game changer. Like it's, I literally wake up every day and I look at her and I'm like, you've made this year amazing for me. And I took some road, I took some road trips myself, like earlier this year through about seven or eight states and saw parts of this country, like completely safe. Like I wasn't like, you know, yeah. you know, hugging and kissing and, and messing with people that I don't know. But like I saw states and parts of this country that I don't think I ever would have seen. Um, 
And I definitely have taken like new approaches to slowing down and, and, and breathing and meditation and how can I pivot my business? And I hear a lot of that in you. For you guys, what has been the biggest like challenge, whether it be in business or as like a family? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, business wise, you know, in March, I was doing a lot of in-person keynotes and those went away. And so I lost like 30 grand. I think it was over an eight hour period in one day in March. And I was mad for like a day. And then the next day I woke up and said, all right, well, and, and you said something that there's a Teddy Roosevelt quote, do what you can with what you have wherever you are. And I was like, okay, well, I just incorporated it in my sales process and started booking virtual keynotes. You know, I went back to those people. I said, I understand you're canceling this, this event, but have you ever considered virtual? No, we don't know how to do that. Well, here's how you do it and help them through it. I just did a speech in the Cayman Islands from a hotel in Blue Ridge, Georgia, you know, to a group of 50 people of bankers in, in Cayman Islands, Georgia. So, you know, there's people in the corner who are going to suck their thumb, get in the fetal position and say, I'm a victim, right? And, you know, for the first month of a, lo- of a lockdown or COVID or whatever, totally understand that. But six months later, if you're a financial advisor saying, I don't know what to do, I only know how to do in-person events and sit across from people and networking and all this, that's on you. Because you, you, you got to make a change and you got to be creative. From a, from a family point of view, you know, we kind of don't like being told what to do, what we can and can't do. But we also, <laughs> I, I respect other people. I have great empathy for other people and understand certain things. Yeah. So that's why we're here because I can go out and about and not offend anyone and not endanger anyone and live and let live type of thing. And, and go, you know, we can go hiking and see people and we're on the path and we're all okay and we're all safe and, and, and doing those types of things. Um, and just be, are, are we going to be here next month? No, but we're going to be on the beach. I can go running on the beach. I can wave to people. I can see people and things like that. And so, I, I, I'm a big fan of the Tao Te Ching, you know, 2,500 years old. And someone just asked me on a show, what's your favorite business book to recommend? I said, the Tao Te Ching. You wouldn't know it's a business book, but it is. He talks a lot about flowing like water. You know, that's where Bruce Lee got it from. And our philosophy is we're going to flow like water wherever we're most free and fulfilled, according to our definition of free and fulfilled. And everyone has to determine what that word freedom means to them and figure out how to live it. And it's, it's not stepping on other people. It's not, it's not doing things that hurt other people. But, you know, we wanted to, people think we're crazy. How do you do that? Why would you do that? Right? That's for us. It's not for you. You and I were talking about whether you're married or not married and figuring that out. There are some people who feel incredibly free not being married. Like, that's cool. The problem you get into is when people conform and think, I got to get married by 25 and then I got to do yeah. this. And then they get to 50 and they've completely messed up five lives. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah, it's, you know, it, it, there is no definition of like there, like freedom in itself is, is not a standard definition, right? Your version of freedom and my version of freedom. I was telling you the story the, like the other day, I met someone who was like, I'm an American, I can do whatever I want. And it was like, right. well, so go drive 150 miles an hour on the freeway. Right. You actually can't. I mean, look, you can, right. And there's some consequences. So we might say you can do whatever you want and there's consequences to when we do whatever we want sometimes. Right, right. So that might curb us from doing whatever we want. But I think it's important that we say like when you, even the marriage thing, right? Like I know when I'm 60 or 70, I do not want to be like a single man. 
in I'm in my 30s, I'm like totally fine with it. And I think um, we have to decide those things. Like you, you have to decide for yourself, right? Like what is freedom? What is joy? What is people tell me all the time? Like, I just want to be financially free. Well, you became financially free when you sold your stuff, right? And like went and got a van. You right. didn't need more stuff to be financially free. You actually became financially more financially free, I would argue, by getting rid of all your stuff. Yeah, because now it's, it's uh, you know, money, money's not bad. And a lot of people say money's the root of all evil. And that's in the Bible. And they're misquoting the Bible. If you actually read it, it says the love of money is the root of all evil. You know, when you become obsessed with it. So when I had my PR and ad agency, we had a lot of money, but I never had enough. And I was terrified always that I would lose it. We wouldn't travel. We had enough money to go anywhere we wanted. But no, I need that, I need that next two grand, that next three grand. So we never traveled. I shut down my agency. We, the, the, that year, we spent six weeks in Europe. Loved it. And you know, we have relatives. Must be nice. How do you do that? How do you much find? I said, because you know what? I value travel more than getting a new uh, granite countertop. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's not saying granite countertops are bad, but again, it goes back to your definition of what you want yeah. in your life. So, and value. You just touched on this is actually a really cool uh, piece that we could look at. You just touched on value, right? Money is just, well, now it's pretty much digital, but it, it was at one point like paper. That's all yeah. it was. And, but then you, but, some of us put the value of this paper higher than our happiness, mm-hmm. higher than our relationships. We value things like granite countertops. Again, right to your point, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. But when often I'll hear someone say like, I can't afford it. And I'm sure you hear this and you talk about this. Like to me, I hear that as, I mean, this is a value conversation. We're not talking about, do you have the money or not have the money? It's where you value placing the energy that is money. Right. Right. What do you Absolutely. I, I think that, well, first of all, on, on money piece, you know, uh, Bob Berg, who wrote the Go-Giver series of books, he's got one of my favorite quotes, and it's that uh, money is an echo of value. And so in a free market, a true free market, I provide you value and impact, and you provide me value in return. And so money is basically a receipt for the value I provide you. When you start looking at money like that, instead of money is a thing unto itself, money controls me, money, you know, it's, it's a much easier mindset. But you also get into this mode of, you know, you ask a lot of entrepreneurs, what's your biggest impediment to starting your own company? I don't have enough money. Well, no. Is it that you don't have enough money or that you don't want to do the work or can't think of the work to think of creative ideas to provide impact and value? When you start waking up and saying, how can I provide impact and value. How can I make a positive impact on the life of someone else, which I think is the definition of a business, no matter what you sell. It not only helps you in terms of your mindset, but when you wake up, some people are so scared of trying to sell because they look at money as somehow bad and evil. And so they wake up thinking, well, my job as a salesperson is to coerce or convince someone to reach into their pocket, unwillingly give me their money for a product they don't want. Well, of course, you're going to be terrified to pick up the phone, right? But when you're like, listen, I have a responsibility to help some of these people who, who want my help because I have a product or service. I don't care if it's golf balls, right? You're improving the life of someone else who likes to play golf. That's great. Mm-hmm. But if you're like, well, I hate golf balls, you don't have to love golf balls. But if you think they're going to improve that person's life, you can sell the heck out of them. I take my hat off. I'm bald up top, right? I don't have to love a comb. But my goodness, if I believe in the positive impact this comb would have on someone like you, I can sell it. 
So, um, but it goes back to that, that, that concept of value and yeah. what do you value and things like money or granite countertop, but that's all stuff. But you use that term energy and money being equal to energy. And, and, and really it is because uh, like you said, it's digital now in the old days, it was, I'll trade you two chickens for a, a, a cow, whatever it is, right? It's that exchange of value. When you, you've built a couple of businesses, like I know at least what, three, four businesses. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I think, I think often for, for entrepreneurs, for business owners, for people in general, we have to have these breakthroughs that, that elevate us up in our like financial or our uh, entrepreneurial game for lack of a better word. And I think we'll see something like you'll, somebody will hit a hundred thousand and it's like, that's a big deal as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And then they get stuck. And, or they're, or they're, it's like baby stepping a little bit higher, but they, they're unable to like make that big leap to 250,000 or half a million, or we'll see it like, right. Somebody gets to a million and they hang out there and they can't seem to break through the ceiling there. Did you ever have any experiences like that where you noticed like you hit a spot and you kind of felt stuck? And, and if you did, what had you been able to get to that next like level? Yeah. So it's interesting with my, I had a PR and ad agency that I started in my twenties. And, you know, I was probably just too stupid to know the rules that I, that I shouldn't start a PR and ad agency at that point. So I just did it. But I had an offensive mindset. And I always, in my 20, I made decisions that said, I don't know if this is a good decision or a bad decision, but I'm moving forward. You know, I, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get one yard, two yards, whatever, and I'm going to just keep moving. And so I did that. But the interesting thing happened when I started making a lot of money for my ad agency, my PR and ad agency, I, I stopped playing offense and started playing defense. And the money was easy to make, but I started hating what I was doing. I started hating my clients. I was 60 pounds heavier on a cocktail of prescription drugs. Um, I remember I was having anxiety attacks so bad. I remember my wife came in. We had two kids at the time. And I said, get them out of the house. I can't stand their voices. I can't. I mean, it was bad. I, I was just not a good human being. Wow. And so three, day, uh, three years ago in 2017, I woke up. It was a Thanksgiving week. And I woke up and I said, I'm done. And I went and told my wife, I, I fired all my clients that day. And a lot of people are like, well, why didn't you get, the, get it ready to sell off? I said, yeah, that would have been smart. Uh, but I, I would have started that process a couple of years earlier, but I was in denial. Because when you're in defense, you're looking at how can I protect ground? How can I protect ground? How can I protect ground? And it becomes a prison. So I had built this prison. So then once I shed myself of that, all of a sudden I started playing offense again. And playing offense helped me to basically build what I wanted to build, help people I wanted to help. But I do see a lot of people, you know, every business goes through this, these four uh, stages. One is forming. Okay, we're, we're growing, we're starting it out, we're doing that. But then they get in the storming phase. And that storming phase, that getting stuck, is where a lot of people, it, it can happen to a lot of people. It happened to me about four years into my agency. For me, it was that I probably had a scarcity mindset and was taking money from any client. They weren't my ideal clients, some of them were toxic clients, and some of them weren't paying me what I worth, but it was money, and it's my time. I don't value time, so I don't care. I'll work 24 hours a day. And I got in that storming phase where it was like, all right, there's not enough hours in the day, and I'm gonna kill myself. And I mean, figuratively, and, and who knows, right? If it had gone for a couple of years. And so I ended up getting a, a help with a, a business strategist, fired half my clients. I fired half my clients and doubled my revenue the next year. That's when I brought it over a million dollars. So you get out of that storming phase, you got to look at where's the blockages in the plumbing. <laughs> and for some people, it's, it's that. It's that they built it around non-ideal clients. 
for some, I had one client who's like, I'm living the dream. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Well, he wasn't charging his clients enough, but he was hiring people. But now he got to a point where he didn't have big enough margins. So he had these clients, but he couldn't hire help. So he was working 24 hours a day. And I'm like, well, how are you going to get more? If your goal is up here and you're here and you're already maxed out, how are you going to get from here to here? You have no money left. So again, it went back to ideal clients, figuring that out, raising your prices, losing some by attrition and, you know, scaling business very simply, more money from less clients. <laughs> you know, that's the easiest way to put it. So um, a lot of different reasons for me, it was, it was too many clients that sucked, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a it's such a true, like, I know, I know it to be true from my experience as well. Um, I, I had similar things. I would take clients like, I think when, well, let me say this. When I started out, I would take any client cause I thought it was important to get reps in. Like I needed to practice my craft and like improve. So good clients, bad clients, it didn't matter. It was just like, just take shots. Like I need to yeah. get better. And then when I got to a certain place, I did get to a place where I would say, hey, I, I can, let's not take 20% of the people. And still I need reps because I want to keep improving, but let's like weed out that percentage that's just like very difficult. Um, and then I, there was a moment, I think this happened at the end of last year. I, I'd, I'd had two or three of the best years I'd ever had in a row. And then at the end of last year, about five or six clients quit all in on you know, within 30 days or something. And, and this had happened to me earlier in my, in my practice and whatnot, but earlier it was like really painful when it happened, right? I got freaked. I went into that scarcity place. And last year when it happened, I went, oh my God, everyone that just quit are all the people that I'm not that, they're not bad people. They're, they're wonderful people, but they're not my ideal clients. They either weren't paying me my ideal rate. They were, or they were paying me whatever rate, but like pulling my soul out of me. And I remember going, I just know this is going to work out. And like within 30 days, the whole thing turned over. Right. And you added three or four new people, half the amount of people for the same amount of money. Um, and I think that as entrepreneurs, we get really scared, right? When like stuff like that happens and we don't realize, we don't see the opportunity on the other side of the, you know, like the, the other side of the darkness. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, again, it's like back to plumbing. Sometimes the, 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 the drains are clogged with those types of clients that are sucking your soul. And ideal clients, there's a lot of things that go into them. You know, it's, it's not just people who are going to give you money. It's people, you know, if, if you are, and I, I could say this apply to even if you're selling widgets, it, those clients that are going to treat you like a trusted advisor instead of a vendor. And they're going to pay you trusted advisor money. But they're also, you know, I have a client who's got a big bookkeeping company. And he likes to work. We identified with home service contractors with teams in the field. I'm like, well, why? Because he used to be a home service contractor with teams in the field. So he feels their pain. He knows what they want. But he got to the point, we looked at his clients and only two of his 20 clients were ideal. So now he's raising his prices and I'm like, you're going to lose clients. But he's got that responsibility strength where that is so painful to him because he's let them down. And I'm like, they're letting you down right now by not paying you enough. And you just got to let them go. They're going to find someone else that's going to that's do it for rock bottom. Once you let go, you have that deep breath, that sigh of relief and you feel good. Just like I'm sure you did. Once you got past that little fear, like they left, it's like, you know what? I survived. I lived. This ain't so bad. 
Yeah, it's changing. I've noticed, I just shared this with my coach this week. I was like, man, I feel like I've gotten to a point in, in working on my mindset and, and awareness of who I'm showing up as and what I'm doing, where I feel like sometimes I'm seeing myself out of body. Mm, like yeah. I'm seeing myself go, I'm seeing something negative happen. And in the moment it's happening, I'm seeing like new neural pathways have formed and I'm going, okay, this sucks but what's the opportunity? There's, go- there's, there's something here that I'm not seeing yet. And I might not see it in the moment. It might take a little bit, but this bad thing or this thing I'm interpreting as bad or uncomfortable or difficult is providing the way for something that I don't see yet. And that moment has you go, all of a sudden the thing that happens is like not that big of a deal anymore. And you're actually excited for like, wait, what's coming? What's the that's kind of how I felt actually this whole year of like, man, there's all, there's so many things that suck about 2020, but with each one that happens, I'm like, where's the gold? Where's the thing? Where's that thing that's coming on the other side that we don't even realize is, is on its way, it's on its way to us. But I do think if you, you don't get that, you don't get those opportunities if you don't cultivate that mindset. Yeah. Yeah. And you got to look for them. Uh, I got a friend, Don Wetrick, and he's, he runs a foundation that builds uh, entrepreneurial students. He's in Indiana, but it's, it's expanding. And he says, you know, one of his goals is to build seekers and peakers instead of uh, moaners and groaners. And you got to open yourself up. You got to be receptive to those messages, you know, and I always tell people the, you know, some of the decisions you make don't feel bad about any decision because in the moment, like you said, it might seem like a really crappy decision, really bad decision, but then you look back and it's part of who you are now. Now, the good news is if you don't like who you are now, guess what? The decisions you start making now are going to change who you are tomorrow. But if you like who you are now, you don't have regrets. Like I, I took this one job. I, I was in a job that was a pressure cooker. It was in fundraising, nonprofit fundraising. And I found out my bosses were doing some things that I, I, I saw as unethical. I walked out on a Saturday. That's it. I wrote a note, I quit. So I had no money. And so I was in my 20s. I had to move back in with my parents, you know? And I'm like, and my dad's like, probably not a good idea to quit that job, right? I'm like, well, no. So I took this job that was a lower pay cut at a small nonprofit Mm -hmm. doing fundraising. My office was literally in a storage closet. And why, like, why did I take that? And people would say, why do you take that? I don't know. It just felt like the right thing to do. Felt like the right thing to do. Well, it was a speech and hearing clinic that would provide like, uh, you know, scaling fee or sliding scale fees to people who need it. You need a hearing aid, but you can't afford it. You need speech. You have a kid who needs speech, can't afford it. And so I became really good friends with this one speech therapist who worked there. I lasted there, I don't know, seven, eight months, something like that, and left. Blip on the screen. Seems like a bad career move. It was down here. Then I went on to a PR firm after that and worked downtown. That speech therapist who I became friends with there, no idea what I would have taken that job. I've been married to her now for almost 20 years. And so it's like, why did I make that decision? And so it's that point. Something feels like I should just take this job. I don't know what it is. And so many people avoid making decisions because they're just stuck in the mud. But you got to realize that's the decision in and of itself. And I think, what is it, World War I? It was like, you know, the Archduke's car they took a wrong turn. They went right instead of left. And that, that's how he got assassinated. What went into that decision-making process? It was a wrong term, you know, whatever, yeah. world war. If you had taken another turn. So all sure. those seemingly bad decisions you've made, maybe they turned out, you never know. 
<laughs> there's there's a um deepak chopra has an exercise in one of his books that i read at one point but he talks about like there are no bad or good decisions that's not even that's not even a thing but we don't understand that because we're looking at the past or we're in the moment and he actually has you do this i do this exercise with people all the time but he he kind of ha- asks you to write down moment and i'm i'm paraphrasing this so i'm not going to get it per- but it's like write down moments where you think you made a bad decision in your past so mm-hmm. you'll be like oh that time i was drinking and driving and like, yeah, I got pulled over, right? Everyone would probably agree, not a great decision. And he's like, and then write down somewhere that you made, you know, a good decision. Oh, that time that I took that job and I ended up meeting my wife, right? And then he goes, now look past those things. What's something good that happened after the DUI? Mm-hmm. Well, my guess is something happened afterwards. Maybe not the day after, the week after, but in the year after, the months after, something positive happened. He goes, and what's something negative that happened after you met your wife? Mm-hmm. Well, there's definitely one of those too. And he and he paid, he has you pave this roadmap where you go essentially every decision to your point, like knocks over another domino and leads you to a new place. But the good and the bad ultimately just lead you down a road that you would never know what was next. So the bad decisions paved the way for the best things, and the good decisions sometimes paved the way for the bad things. And if you look at that, there is no right or wrong decisions. We're simply like moving through this journey. And if we don't like the way we're headed, then make a, you know, take a different turn, make a different choice. And at least at that point, you've made some decisions. So the ship is moving and it's easier to turn a ship that's moving than it is to get it out of the dock. Yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of people, uh, when I do interviews like this, ask me, you know, what's your biggest regret? I'm like, you know, I don't really have any regrets because of what you're saying. And I used to. And I, I, I told someone recently, it was like, you know, my dad died in 2012. He was my hero. And him passing away was the first wake-up call that here's this guy. He had this incredible career, worked on the space program, designed all the electronic switches in the Boeing 777, all this stuff. Everyone comes to his wake, grown men crying. Not a single person talked about my dad's career. It was about husband, father, volunteer in the community. He would read audiobooks to the blind. And I'm sitting there, and at that point, I was still in my, I'm not a good husband, not a good. And I was just like, what, what the hell am I doing? Like, I'm not setting up that example. Leading up to him passing away for like a couple of years, you know, he's retired. And he's like, let's go golfing. Can you go to lunch today? And be like, dad, I'm running a business. No, I'm, I'm important, dad. I got important stuff to do. He passes away. And I'm like, you know, what I wouldn't give for, for one hour to spend with my dad. So for a couple of years after, I'd say that's my biggest regret. But now thinking back, that sitting at his wake was the start, the pebble started rolling and then grew and grew and grew. And that's when it got to 2017. Like I had the wake up call five years ago, dude, what are you waiting for? And, and so now I talk to my dad every day. You know, I ask him advice every day, but I also live up to his example and say, listen, am I living a life that I would want my dad to be proud of? And if that's no, you know, it's like, it's like Obi-Wan, right? If you strike me down, I'll be more powerful. It's almost like since he passed, he's more powerful in my life than before, unfortunately. So I don't have any regrets. There's things you wish you do, but like to your point, yeah, write that, write that down. I didn't play golf with him. Then what happened in the year after that? Um, mm-hmm. So that, that, that's wonderful. I actually love that exercise. I'm going to steal yeah. it. <laughs> you know, I, I wish I remembered which it's again, it's not mine. It's Deepak Chopra's, but like it's in, I read, I was, I was actually sitting, I remember where I was in Joshua tree and I had rented a house in Joshua tree for a month and I was living out there. I had been moving around at the time and I was reading 
it was also a book that I found in a box that I had probably gotten, you know, when I was like 20. And at the time I was in Joshua Tree, I was in my mid thirties and I found it in a box in my parents' attic. And I was like, I've never read that, read this book. I don't know why I have it in my box of all my stuff that, you know, has somehow ended up in their attic. And I took it with me to Joshua Tree and it was like one of the probably best books I've ever read, but that exercise I use all the time in my own life and with my clients. And I think even to that, like, where did this book come from? Like, I got this book somewhere along the way. It didn't magically appear in the box, right? I bought it, I found it, whatever. I kept it. When I moved throughout time, it ended up, like, I made all these decisions that had that book show up in my life at a time where I think I needed it and at a time where I was looking for resources to bring to the people. So it's like even that, right? Like all those little decisions. Um, I want to ask you about like what's, when you've gotten to this place in your life where, you know, I don't know how you measure success, but I would say, you know, when I look at your bio and you shared with me what you've done, I would say, hey, this is a successful guy. Not only is he successful because of what he's accomplished in his business, but he has a family that it's clear that he loves. He has a wife that he's, it's clear that he's grateful that he met at this job. You know, he has relationships with his family, his, his nuclear, his, or I guess his like parents. And, mm-hmm. and like, those are thought of positively. This sounds like a successful life. What, what's next? Like, how do you, where do you go at this point? Yeah. You know, I really, I, I, gosh, that, that it's, the first thing that comes to mind is that that term flowing like water. Mm-hmm. And when you flow like water, you just know, never know where it's going to take you, but you're always moving forward. And there's boulders in the stream, right? And you look at those boulders and they're huge, but they're smooth because the water went to the right or to the left or over them. And a lot of times what we try to do is go up to the boulder and just bang our head against it until we're bloody. And then we bang it some more. And so just to keep in that state of flow, you know, my, my life vision is uh, saving the world by helping individuals fight for lives of freedom and fulfillment. And knowing that helps me to know what to say no to and to say yes to. But I think sometimes, you know, Bruce Lee has a quote that it's not about the daily increase, it's about the daily decrease and hacking away at the unessential. You know, getting rid of, he flowed. When he, when, when he did martial arts and wind, ch- I mean, it was, you know, I find that in life too. And that's my daily challenge is to eliminate the unessential so that I don't wake up with that little bit of nervousness, that I don't wake up with that little bit of anxiety, where I can wake up and nothing's good or bad, it just is, but keep flowing past it. And um, when I want to go back to something you said about where did that book come from? Last year, well, I go back to shutting down my company. People are like, why did you do that? Why did you do that? Fast forward to COVID, some of my clients got wiped out this year. And if I had hadn't built a three-year runway to build up my current company, I would not have been in a state mentally or physically to deal with this year. I mean, I would have completely fallen apart, right? So it's interesting, those decisions. But last October, um, I I just, I, I was feeling just again, you know, I was maybe getting into a little storming phase with my business. And I went out to, um, I was doing some live events last year. I was doing more live events. And I went out to London to, uh, I don't know if you know, Brian Rose, he hosts a podcast called London Real. And he's got a whole bunch of different eclectic group of people on there. So I, but he had a London Real Summit. I said, I'm going to go out there just to see how it's done. I really don't care about the speakers. I just want to see how this event is done. I went out there and the event was done very well, but he had 
did he have four speakers? There, there was three that I remember. One of them is Dan Pena, who's like the $50 billion man, just dropping F-bombs. It's all about money and everything. That's cool. Okay. He's entertaining. <laughs> but one was uh, a former Hindu monk, now turned like executive coach. Uh, his name's Don Dapani. And, um, and then Marissa Peer, who, who talks about hypnotism in the mind. And I sat there. I'm here just to steal ideas for an event. And I sat there and I listened to them. And it just blew my mind. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then on the plane, and then I just started going back to those other Brian Rose episodes that weren't business oriented, but had like Wim Hof about breathing exercises and doing these things. And I said, All right, I'm gonna start doing it. I went carnivore, pure carnivore for 30 days. I started doing Wim Hof. I started meditating. I started doing all these things. And then, and then it was crazy. All of a sudden, I'd, I'd find a book and I'd read it. And, I, and because of someone I met, that book spoke exactly to something that Marissa Peer just said. And then all of a sudden, I just kept finding these books. And it just kept leading me on that path. So when March happened, and COVID, and things locked down, I was just like in this state of bliss. And just kind of like, all right, that's it. Whereas I wouldn't have been pre-October. And it was just, it was, those things happen and you don't know how. And I just, you know, it's, it's metaphysical or something. Maybe it's just reticular activation system. Maybe it's the fact that I had a discussion and Apple knew it. So they suggested those type of books, whatever it was, it worked. Right. Um, and, and it's interesting how that happens, but you, you have to be receptive to it. Yeah. You can't, it's, it's like, we don't, we're not going to find something if we're not looking for it yeah. and our eyes are open to what is there and what's possible. I, I want to, we skip something that I think it's important yeah. we go back to because you told me before there's the four stages of business, form, storm, but we didn't get the other two. Oh but, yeah, yeah. It, it's all ing, right? So it's forming, storming. When you break out of the storming phase, you get into norming and then performing. So it's kind of growing. Um, and, and businesses can go through this multiple times, you know, it's, it's a, it's a constant process of improvement. And as you grow new problems, more money, more problems, right? More staff, more of these things. And then you got to do that and you got to go through that process again. Um, you know, I, I find entrepreneurial minded companies get through it more easily than I just talked to someone who works for a large corporation who is so results oriented that they have tunnel vision and, and, and they're just stuck in the storming phase because they just hire people, they don't perform this week, out, hire new people, and they're just constant storming phase. Well, and that's a great point too. You brought up a, a metaphor and an analogy. I don't, I'm like, never know what the difference is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I brought this up before um, about like a ship is, hard to, is harder to tr maneuver when it's, at, you know, in docked versus when it's already moving. And I think that applies too when we look at big companies or small. You know, if Nike wants to pivot, that demands enormous energy, enormous enrollment of getting their teams on board and the people and the stores and the advertising and all these things. If I want to pivot, well, it's me and a couple people that have to get on the same page and we can do it immediately. It's like Nike is a cruise liner and I'm a speedboat. Now, if we're plowing through you know, if there's, if, if we're on, if the waters are rough, they're going to might be able to move through them a little bit easier than for me. But if we got to turn around or move or shift directions, I actually have the advantage. Yeah. And I think sometimes as smaller businesses or entrepreneurs or small business owners, I work with a lot of like blue collar, small business owners who have built really incredible businesses and they forget like 
you can pivot in a year like this so much faster than some of these big companies. Yes, the big companies have some other advantages, like they might have a lot more money, but there's some things they cannot do that you can do. Yeah, and when you get stuck in that mindset, whether you're big or small, there's some small, I mean, you look at restaurants, there's some restaurants who have completely upped their game with carryout. And then there's some, it's like, you can't figure this out. You know, some, some have gone and built drive-through windows where there was no drive-through window because they're like, yeah. listen, we got to survive. Yeah. Um, you know, that fixed mindset can be, you know, and when times are good, it's easy to get lazy. I work with a lot of, you know, as solopreneurs say who are in the financial space and they're 90% referral based. They get lazy when times are good and the referrals are coming in and then all of a sudden your referral source drives up or there's a pandemic or whatever. And so I, I've talked to people this week and they're like, actually, it's pretty good. I've word of mouth and referral and referral. I said, what would you do if January, if all of a sudden we're locked down again and your referrals dried up? Well, what I'd have to do is I'd have to go back. I'd have to go back and I'd have to restart it. And I compare it to, you know, growing up, I grew up in Chicago, the Chicago area. And so, you know, every winter after the long summer and spring, well, short summer and spring in Chicago, but you take out the snowblower and it's this blizzard and you prime it and you put the oil in and the gas and then you'd sit there in frustration for a half hour and get the, the, the worst workout in the world by pulling that cord you had to get that thing primed and then you get mad at it. You kick at it. You go back inside and you'd be like, I just got to let it rest. I got to let myself rest. And then you go out again. You try to get, you do that a couple of times. Once you get it going then for the rest yeah. of the winter, it's ready to go. And what I try to do with business owners is like, keep growing, keep that prime pumped. Even when times are good, the best thing you can have is a waiting list, mm -hmm. but get it going. Keep having those conversations. I call it that mindless process that every day I try to get my folks to talk to at least 10 people on the phone. And how do you do that? You reverse engineer that to, to get to talk to them. But that's tough because sometimes, hey, I got my clients. I'm not going to sell. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to have conversations with people. Always act like you're going to lose your biggest client. Mm -hmm. If you're selling kind of this, if you're, if you're someone that's got this you know, high volume and you got 200 clients, all right, always act like you're going to lose 100. Always act like there's going to be a pandemic or a 2007, 2008 meltdown or 2001, 9-11 terrorist attack or whatever happens every 10 to 15 years. If you do that, the waves of the world will be less choppy. And I'm not saying, listen, they're not gonna go down a little bit, but it's not gonna be like the person who goes down and says, I, I, I don't know what to do, my company's not built for this. Yeah, it also reminds me, like at first when you said, act like you're gonna lose your biggest client, the first thing that hit me was, that's kind of such a negative mindset. But then I, I kind of took a step back and went, I thought about it from a sports metaphor. Michael Jordan, LeBron James, the Dodgers this year, they're going to score. Like, it doesn't matter how good your defense is. They are going to score. That's losing your biggest client. Like, it's going to happen. Like, your biggest client at some point is going to leave. And defense would have you be, like, obsessing about how you stop them from scoring. Right. But the way that you beat them is actually not by necessarily – you might – slow them down a little bit, but you actually have to outscore them. You got to, you when LeBron James makes a shot, you're going to have to make one on the other end because you're probably not going to stop him. So can, but can you, can you control what you can control, which is, can you make a shot? Um, and I just, yeah. thought, I love that idea of like, if you're going to lose, if you're thinking about, you're going to lose your biggest client, but you're not like, like, like obsessing and scared of it. You're actually like, I'm going to go get a bigger client while it's while that's happening. 
Yeah, because you never know what's going to happen. The um, you, since we're on sports metaphors, like I'm, my dad went to Notre Dame. I'm a big Notre Dame. Ugh, I went to I went to USC. Let's just. Oh, there you go. I was at the Bush Push game, which ripped my heart out. But, oh man, that yeah. I was I was I, I was at the USC Texas National Championship. Oh wow, so th- those are like two of the biggest game, two of the best football games of all time. Yeah, right. Oh yeah, well, I was watching the Clemson game, and you know I'm not a big Brian Kelly fan. Mm-hmm. And Brian Kelly, it's like in big games, he starts playing more conservatively and defensively. This game, they played Clemson. They beat the number yeah. one team. They, they were aggressive on defense. And typically, you know, at the end of the game, they go into prevent. And I hate prevent because you're playing not to, to lose. lose. Yeah. And so everyone just marches down the field and scores. They did something different this time. They went at, what was it? The last three downs were all sacks of the quarterback, mm. I think, or about they took it to him and they won the game. And, yeah. you know, you look at you know, like Nick Saban, it's, it's like he hoards four star recruits or whatever the highest star is. It's like, mm. Why does he need that? Because he's got three, four star recruits at quarterback. You never know what's going to happen. If you ever watch a Nick Saban team, the starting quarterback goes out. You don't even know this difference. <laughs> you know, it's like, or he could say, yeah. well, I've recruited a four star. I'm going to sit back. Yeah. It's not that he's obsessing about it. It's just more like, what could happen? Yeah. You know, that guy breaks his leg next up yeah. and that's it. That's great. I want to, I want to wrap this right here. Cause I think that was a, that's a great way to wrap this podcast. Not only is it on a fun sports conversation, but also <laughs> just, it's a great metaphor. Um, Kurt, I want to give people like, so people know where to find you, how to find you. I know that you're on Twitter and it's your full name. I'm going to spell it out for people and it'll also be in the show notes. But it's C-U-R-T and then M-E-R-C-A-D-A-N-T-E. And on Instagram, you're the dot freedom lifestyle. Is there a dot before the E too? Uh, the is that just dot a typo? freedom lifestyle. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it should be, yeah, right after the cool. dot. Okay, so the dot freedom lifestyle. You're also on LinkedIn. Uh, people can go to your website, which is Merck, M E. RC period and then enterprises. Um, and again, all of this will be in the show notes. Is what's the best? Like, where are you? Where's the best place to kind of like if people want to message you, talk to you? I got a real easy way for people to get in touch with me and also some free goodies for your listeners. Cool. If you take out your smartphone and text the word you authority, so like authority, but you, Y O U authority to the number 55678, you get an auto text back with a bunch of free goodies, including uh, three free webinars. Four Pillars of an Authority Brand. Uh, there's a webinar on leveling up your LinkedIn. Uh, another webinar on using podcasts to build your authority. Um, and there's also a link there where you can get in touch with me. So free goodies, youth authority, if you text that keyword to 55678. Free stuff. Cool. And, and it's easier to spell than Mercadante. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's, so it's, but just, it's you, Y-O-U-T-H-O-R-I-T-Y, youth authority, yeah. and then 55678. Yep. That's cool. I'm going to, I am going to do that. I, I'm going to, I'm going to steal your free gift. Um, <laughs> anything else? I always like to, you know, let you have the last word, anything you want to share, give the audience, like, like not in terms of more things to give, but to like just offer. Um, yeah, no, I, I, this has been a pleasure and I love the conversation and talking about value, talking about energy, talking about decisions because that decision-making process is so important to just make a decision, make any decision. I think it was Bezos, Jeff Bezos, who recently talked about the best decisions, the most important decisions are, are most made often with your instinct and your gut. And for someone like Bezos to say that, 
<laughs> you know, but I think if you talk to a Musk, if you talk to Steve Jobs when he was alive, I think they would say the same thing. And, um, you know, sometimes dots on a graph don't tell the whole story. So don't be afraid to make decisions, have that entrepreneurial mindset. I call it a freedom mindset. It doesn't just apply to doing whatever you want, but it applies to building the business the way you can and pivot so that you have the freedom to do so. And uh, Alex, thank you so much for allowing me time to spend time with you and your listeners. Yeah, thanks for being here. Thanks for um, it, your, your vibe, your energy is, was just so easy to be with. Um, likewise, but, likewise. but thanks for, yeah, you're, you're, I love like the mindset of you're, you're out here trying to help people live better lives. You're also super committed at the same time to like living a great life with your family and you're being creative and you're setting a great example for like, hey, stuff's happening and figure out how to live your life the best way you can inside or outside of whatever's happening. Um, thanks for having some fun with me today, dropping some gems and um, yeah, just, just being a great guest. I really appreciate you. Thank you. My pleasure. And everybody listening, thank you for being here. Again, I hope you are well and safe and thriving and I hope you will share this episode with somebody who needs to hear it and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Honestly, I'm just a rebel who found a cause and has a dream and I'm super grateful for your support. If you got anything from this, please help me out and share this podcast with one person today. You can find me at thedreammason.com or at inspirationalalex on Instagram. You are a dream mason because your dreams don't build themselves. <laughs>